welcome here. I also want to tell you the story of Jesus this morning and like the arrangement in four ways, in four parts. Arrangement was away in a manger and then the wonderful cross. And then what came after that? Up from the grave he arose. He is risen. Oh, man. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And then the fourth one was, oh, praise the name. So that's the full-length story of Christ. And what I want to look at today is this. I want to ask you the question, what does it take to create the ultimate, the ultimate, and in our case, Savior? Now, we just ended the month of March. And so for our family, what that means is March Madness. We enjoy the NCAA basketball tournament, single elimination down to the final rounds. And as soon as that's over, however, we haven't lost out on all basketball. But instead, after March Madness begins, the NBA playoffs, exactly right. I know one little guy got that right, at least. The NBA playoffs start after that. And so the banter never ceases back and forth, yada, yada, yada. Who's the best? Who's going to win? This team, that team. Never stops. And one of the conversations that goes on at our table is this, is what would it take to create the ultimate basketball player? What would that look like? And as you can imagine, even if you're not a basketball fan, you know there's various skill sets. There's perhaps height and strength. There's also speed and agility. There's the ability to shoot the ball or come up in the last minute with a clutch shot. And different players and the different teams of the NBA seem to have different pieces of this game. So, for example, like LeBron James, he might be this giant monster of a man who can slam dunk it and just bring it home and nobody can stop him. Or there might be Steph Curry, who is not quite as big as LeBron, but boy, if he gets the ball, he can shoot the lights out. Or perhaps it's not Steph Curry, but maybe it's Kyrie Irving. And that little dude can spin around people, run left and right like you wouldn't believe, and you don't know what happened. All of a sudden, he scored the ball. That's that's the way it works. So my kids, they look at these guys and they go, okay, what, would it, what if this player had LeBron's strength and Steph Curry's shooting ability and, and Kyrie's dribbling ability? He would be the ultimate NBA superstar. Now, as I imagine, say I take that conversation and I pick it up and I drop it 2,000 years ago. There's no NCAA. There's no NBA. There's just some little Jewish boys, and they're not around a table. They're probably around a rug. And they might be discussing what would it take to make the ultimate. But since at that time, there's no basketball or sports like that. Instead, what they're asking is, what would it take to make the ultimate Messiah? And what that is, for you who are unfamiliar with that term, it's basically a Jewish term for a king or a deliverer, or a hero, or someone who comes to their rescue or their aid, like a superhero or something like that. What is the ultimate Messiah going to look like? Jewish people have experienced tremendous amount of oppression over their lifetime. They're in this crossroads between the east and the west and the north and south. Everybody has to march through their land to get where they're going, and most people want to own it. So various times, different kingdoms, whether it's Egypt or Syria or Babylon or Greece or Rome, whoever, have all come marching through there and have all knocked out this people group and have all taken control. And so they're used to being attacked and they're used to being destroyed and their daily experience is a tough one. And they're always asking, what about those legends? What about those promises? What about those ancient myths or the writings, the stories of scripture? 
And I imagine at this point that perhaps some of those little boys had just sat on their grandfather's knee and he told them the story of either Moses or Samson or perhaps David or Solomon or maybe the prophet Elijah. And each of them probably went back to that spot and they said, okay, what would it take to make the ultimate Messiah? And one little boy probably said, I know, I know. He's got to be like Moses. He's got to be able to lead the people and raise his staff and part the waters so that they can escape their oppressor Pharaoh. Another little boy says, no, 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 that's not good enough. It's one thing to get across the water, but what about the giants on the other side? You got to be ready to fight. And so he begins talking about his favorite hero, David, and how he, with just a mere sling and a few stones, took out this gargantuan giant named Goliath. Another one says, he's a little more bookish, and he says, no, no, what you need to rule the people with fairness and righteousness and justice is a wise ruler. You need somebody like Solomon. When he issues decrees, people are blown away by his wisdom. He builds up the kingdom. The economy goes great. Everything runs well. And people from near and far come to hear, how do you do it? That's Solomon. Perhaps the last little one jumps in and he or she says, well, you know what? It's, it's not any of those. In fact, it should be like the Elijah. It should be a prophet. Because even though he wasn't a king and even though he wasn't a deliverer, man, he was in tune with the power of God. He did miracles like no one had ever seen. Remember, Elijah was the one who raised the widow's dead son. And Elijah was also the one that called down fire from heaven upon the offerings presented before God and consumed them and chased away all the prophets of Baal. Now, that is awesome. If you can have any superpower you want, fire from the fingers, that's a pretty good one. Elijah. You know, even the disciples wanted to do that later, remember? Everybody likes Elijah. So here's all these heroes, and they're starting to ask, okay, who's the best? Who's the biggest? What would it take to create the ultimate Messiah? And today, in the next few minutes, I want to show you what Acts chapter 2 says the ultimate Messiah would look like. There are four things, four things that Jesus absolutely must had to be in order for him to be the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate king, the ultimate Messiah. Four things today that Jesus is, and three things that we will take away from that. So ratios four to three. Four things that Jesus is, three things for us to take away. The scripture is coming from Acts chapter one, verses one or chapters one through two. I know that we like it if you bring your Bibles and that helps you to follow along. But today I have um condensed a large portion of scripture i've cut out a bunch of verses and abbreviated it to pack it all in so i just ask that you go ahead and watch on the screen it's going to be in a different translation too so it may not match your bible exactly please go check it later make sure we're telling the truth but what i'm doing here is sort of giving you the narrative flow or the idea of the experience of what happened immediately after jesus had been crucified and raised from the grave And so there's this historian, a doctor by the name of Luke, and he's writing to his friend by the name of Theophilus. Thea is God and Philos is to love, so this God lover. And he's writing to him and saying, okay, Theophilus, let me tell you the story of Jesus. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus. Here's a man who is unlike any other. You look into his eyes, 
He captures your glance and controls your soul. You change instantly, but you don't know why. He began to do things and teach unlike anyone else until the day he was taken up into heaven. Then the Holy Spirit came down. The crowd was baptized. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Peter preaches to the onlookers who are questioning what happened. It's weird. I mean, like, we came from all over the Roman Empire, and we're understanding what these people are saying in our own language. It doesn't make sense. Here's a miracle. Tell us, Peter, what does it mean? And so he begins to preach to the crowd, explains to them that, no, indeed, these people are not drunk, but instead, what's happening is what was promised and is now being fulfilled. He says this, People of Israel, listen up. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and in his intentional, beforehand, sovereign, thought-out, prearranged plan, this was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God raised him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, where death could not keep its grip on him. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we apostles are all witnesses. We've all seen him. Now he's exalted to the highest place of honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he has promised, gave the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us just as you see and hear today. So, here's the point then. Let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. The praise of his glory forever and ever. Amen. So you'll notice in that last verse that I put four numbers in there. Those are the four dots that I'd like to connect for you today. The point one, point two, point three, and point four. And the first point is this. Jesus, what did Jesus have to be to be the ultimate Messiah? Jesus had to be perfect. Jesus had to be perfect. Let me say that again. Jesus had to be perfect. And what I mean by perfect is actually perfect. Like in every single way. His entire life, forever and ever, he never, ever, ever made a single mistake. He didn't even think a mistake. He didn't even think of thinking a mistake. He was so perfect that sin could not touch him. We walk through the streets and it feels like stuff sticks to us. We just see it and we pick it up and we think about it later and it becomes part of us. And then we act on it and we're like, ugh, yuck. But Jesus was so perfect that sin just fell off of him. It got out of the way. And when he walked into a room, everyone else knew, boy, there is someone different here. And sometimes that made people angry. And they would want to lash out at him. And other times it caused a different response, like humility and repentance and prayer. But whatever it was, wherever they were at, the same was true, is that Jesus was absolutely perfect in every way. He's 100% sinless. And perhaps some of us are saying, well, you know, 
Big deal. You know, he was God. But one of my favorite verses in scripture says this in Hebrews chapter four. It says, look, he was tempted in every way like we are in every way. Yet without sin, it wasn't like he had the easy street. In fact, he encountered everything we have ever encountered and overcame it. The suffering, the pain, the loneliness, the questions, the hurt, the sorrow, frustration, anger, rage, all of it. Jesus saw it. Jesus overcame. In every single way, he was perfect. So why? What's the point, Pastor? Why does Jesus have to be perfect? And the reason is this, is because almighty, infinite God is perfect. So for God to accept something, regardless of what it is, it has to be perfect. It just has to be. God is so infinitely beautiful, so infinitely holy, so infinitely righteous, that no even single infinitesimal micro sin can enter into his presence in his justice he must reject it and so what happens then is that jesus is able to do what none of us could because he was 100 percent god and 100 percent man because he was 100 percent perfect then he could offer his life on our behalf as a sacrifice for our sins and god would accept it For us, it doesn't work that way because no matter how hard we try, we will never be perfect and we will never be good enough for God. But because Jesus was, then there is actually the potential that humanity and deity can be together again through the bridge of the God-man. So Jesus is perfect, number one. That's absolutely essential. If Jesus is not perfect, all is lost. Like, You search the scriptures. You look and see if you can find him making a mistake, thinking a bad thought, having a bad day. Never. Even in his worst moment, even when he's in tremendous suffering and pain, still he is thinking of others more than himself. Jesus is perfect. Number one. Number two, here's here's the weird part. Here's the part that the Bible calls a stumbling block. Jesus was slaughtered. Jesus was slaughtered. He was crucified. He was destroyed. Now think about it, kids. If if you're recruiting an NBA team, you're building your professional sports franchise, who are you going to recruit? You're going to recruit the most healthy, the most powerful, most athletic, agile person you can. You are not going to recruit the person who has a blown-out knee. If they've torn their ACL and it's a crippling injury for the rest of the season and they're done, you're not interested. So too with the Jewish people, like When Jesus came on the scene, and they're looking at the power of Rome, they're expecting someone who is strong enough and powerful enough to actually defeat Caesar, to overcome their oppressors. But Jesus is this carpenter from Nazareth who's going to be crucified. That makes no sense whatsoever. He's supposed to win, not get killed. This is a stumbling block, and for many of us today, I think it is as well, because Or you say, okay, the Jewish people didn't get it because they didn't have the New Testament. They didn't understand, whatever. But the reality is this. Even when you watch our Easter celebrations, in a lot of ways, we do the same thing. We say things like, it's Friday, but don't worry. Sunday's coming. And we get all amped up and we think of it like, okay, Friday was the setback. And this bad thing happened, but Jesus is tough. And so he pushed through it and he overcame In reality, that's not true at all. The reason for Good Friday is that God planned it on purpose. It was not an accident. It is not plan B. This was intentional from before the beginning of time. From before God made creation, humanity, and the rest 
of everything he planned for Jesus to go to the cross. This was on purpose, and so it's it's wild because we look at it and we think, you know, about our superheroes and other stuff, and we think, okay, here's the moment where the good guy gets beat down, and if he's really tough, he's going to get up again. But the reality is this. Jesus didn't get caught by surprise. He stepped into the punch. He saw it coming, knew it was coming, and took it on purpose because it was God's plan. Now, lest we think he is overcome at this moment, he gives us little reminders all along the way to say, hey, look, I'm still in control. When the guards come to get him and he's in the garden, he's been praying all night. They say, hey, where's this Jesus? They're coming in and Jesus says, who are you looking for? They say, well, Jesus. And he says, right here. Boom. They fall to the ground. He steps forward and the Roman centurions drop. Read it in John. Next, Peter tries to defend him, and Jesus is like, hey, hang on. I could call forth, like, legions of angels. I don't really need your help here. I'm doing exactly what my father and I planned to do. Get behind me, Satan. Whoa! What? You just called one of your disciples Satan? Okay, it's a little out of order, but... Why? Well, because anyone who opposes Jesus going to the cross is getting directly in the way of the perfect will of God. God has planned this from eternity past. The most important thing for Jesus to do is to go to the cross. The worst thing you could do is stop, prevent him from getting there. That is the one thing you cannot do. And so Jesus is marching forward. He's dropped the guards. He's assured Peter of his control. He gets on the cross, and even when he's hanging there dying, he worries about his mom, and then pronounces salvation on someone. The Jewish people know only God can pronounce the forgiveness of sins. No one else can just look over at somebody and say, today you're going to heaven. We don't know their hearts, but he did. And he, from the cross, could declare salvation. Then similarly, in the same time, he can also forgive the people who are crucifying him and say those, what are in English, three words, Greek, one, the most important, I think, words in scripture, it is finished. It's finished. Like it's done. He won and there's no going back. This is where Christ triumphed. Colossians 2 says he's nailed our enemies to the cross, disarmed the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing. The cross is not a tragedy. It is a triumph. The cross is not a tragedy. It is triumph. So think about this then. Those little kids are gathered around at their, perhaps their evening meal. And they start reviewing and they say, yeah, what would it take to create the ultimate Messiah? One says Moses. Because he could part the waters. But if they knew that was coming, they would say Jesus. Because he could walk on the waters. They might say Moses because he could hit the rock and, and the water would come gushing out. But instead, Jesus was stabbed by a spear, and the spirit and the water come flowing out of him. They say, we want someone like Samson, who can bear the weight of the pillars and push it down upon the enemy. In reality, what they need is someone like Jesus, who could bear the weight of the world on his shoulders and carry our sin to the cross. Do you understand the magnitude of the weight that he carried at that point? Every single sin... Every single sin ever placed upon him. 
Think about how many hundreds of thousands of millions of sins I've committed. Then add a few more people. Then think about the billions of people alive today and all the people who've ever professed faith in Jesus. Anyone who has believed in him has had their sin effectually, effectively transferred to him and he carried that. Every guilty thought, every bad thing, and he took the royal pounding and beating to pay for it. That's strong, and that makes Samson look very, very small. What about David? He killed a giant. Jesus defeated all evil, the devil himself. What about Solomon? He was wise. Jesus was the word made flesh. What about Elijah? He raised people like the widow's son from the dead. Jesus Son of God himself was raised from the dead. Here's Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Therefore, I will not let his body decay. But instead, he'll be raised from the grave just as it was prophesied. Jesus was resurrected. He had to be. If he was perfect, it would be really cool. If he was crucified, it would be great. But if that's it, he would have been any other teacher like any other moral um, example we have. And he wouldn't have been a savior. He would have been just another good dude. But because he's risen from the grave, that tells us that he is different, that he is in fact God. And last and finally, the fourth thing that Jesus had to be is this. He had to be, he had to ascend. After he was crucified and risen, he was taken up into heaven. And the assurance and promise given is that he will return in the same way. This is absolutely necessary too, because look, if he was perfect, great. He was crucified, wonderful. If he was risen, yes. But then he'd still be here with us and we'd be stuck in the same mess. He might go heal a few people, but that isn't going to end the suffering at the end of the day. What we need is a ruling king who rules perfectly in righteousness and justice way beyond that of Solomon who comes back and sets up his eternal kingdom forevermore. That's when sin and pain and death will be done away with and that is what we need in a Messiah. Jesus has to be all for. If he's anything less than any of them, we are wasting our time this morning. It is all a wash. The world is going to end and who cares? But if these are true, then there's hope. Then the root of sin has been severed and suffering will end and Jesus will come back and make everything well. That is the Christian victory. So those are the four things that Jesus Jesus is and was. He's perfect, he's slaughtered, he's risen, and he's reigning. There are three things that we can take away from that for our lives as well. How do we imitate Christ? Um, in our In my dinner conversations, when we have these ultimate hero talks about NBA players and stuff like that, what's kind of funny is we watch the highlight highlight reel and the highlight reel is perfect every single shot goes in like 10 minutes and never shows a miss and it's on a 10-foot goal and these guys are flying through the air from the free throw line and doing all kinds of crazy things and we're like okay that's pretty cool we think we can do that so what do we do we go downstairs and we got like a four or five foot hoop nailed into the stud in the wall and then my little boys come out and i toss them alley-oops and they grab them and slam them and they run around like ah we're the best. <laughs> you know? But then we come out here on a real hoop that's 10 foot tall. Imagine trying that. It's pretty high and we don't get very close. We fall short. 
It's too big. It's too high. And a lot of us Christians, I imagine, we feel like that about Jesus. Hey, you just said he's perfect. And now you're telling me to be like Jesus? No way. I can do little things. But man, that is way too high a standard for me to ever be able to hit it. What do I do? What do I do? There are three things. Now I'll start with R. And they are these. I'll, I'll give them to you in order and then we'll talk about them for a second. Number one is repent. Number two is rest. Number three is rejoice. So repent, rest, and rejoice. Repent, rest, and rejoice. Let me talk about the first one, repent. I know when we hear that word, a lot of times it's kind of a bad word. Like we hear repent and we think, man, I'm in trouble. I'm being shamed. I'm guilty. Someone else is going to make fun of me. They'll find out what I'm really like. They'll use it against me. They'll bring this back up. It's going to be a bad day. And so repent becomes kind of a bad word to us. But in reality, the way the Bible uses the word is very different. Repent is a word that's almost synonymous for rejoice. It's to have your burdens lifted off of you. It's to no longer carry the weight of your guilt and shame. It's to give it to somebody else who is actually strong enough to carry it for you. This is the only way that we can receive rest and we can begin to rejoice is if we repent. It's a good thing. And so what happens is this, rather than hide from our sin, rather than deny it, rather than play it down, rather than ignore it, we need to just fess up, own it, and put our arms around it and say, yeah, this is me. I did that specifically. You know how euphemistically we speak about our sins? We say things like this, oh, it didn't come out quite the way I wanted it to. Oh, be real. Say, man, look, I said this. It hurts you. This is how. I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? Might as well own it. They know you did it. You do too. And God certainly does. He reads your thoughts, your heart, and everything else. We're not fooling anybody. And he knows all of our sins. And so the only way out from under this burden is to repent. We should repent and repent and repent and repeat. We need to live a life of repentance. It's not a one and done and then I forget about it and go away. It's a continual ongoing thing. It's not like the guy who gets married and he comes down and he says, I love you, I do. And then he tells his wife, well, I've said it to you once. If anything changes, I'll let you know. No. A real relationship is telling her I do and I love you over and over and over again. So too with repentance, it's not just the day you get saved. If you're a Christian, you believe in Jesus, you got to repent and repent and repent and repent. Not out of guilt, not out of shame, but out of joy. He takes our burdens from us. He liberates us and frees us. It's funny, it's amazing how good you'll feel after you do that. You will feel happy after you say you're sorry. It doesn't necessarily cure you of your sin instantly, You will still have to work with the Holy Spirit and Scripture and the community of faith over a long period of time to get better. But it's the starting point. You repent. Next, you need to rest. And let me say this, too. I can't can't leave this spot without saying this. I just spoke to Christians there, but I'm not so naive to assume that everyone here is at that place. Maybe today you came with a friend. Maybe it's your first time. Christians talk about repentance a lot because we admit our sin and we believe in Jesus. But if you've never done that, we would love it. You would love it. God would love it. If you did that for the first time today, 
See, without him, there is no rest. There is no joy. There is no peace. If you want to know joy, you have to know God. And the only way is through Jesus because you're not perfect. And so I want to challenge you today, if you've never, ever, ever believed in Jesus, if you, you might think, hey, there's a man upstairs, or yeah, I know there's a God out there, and whatever, I, yeah, yeah. No, 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 I'm saying, you meet this person face to face. You say, God, show me you. I believe that Jesus is the perfect God-man, crucified, risen, and coming again. I believe, will you please forgive? Do that today. I mean, do it today. If you leave this room and you haven't done that, we don't know what's going to happen. We pray nothing terrible, but you know what? Life is short. Tomorrow's not a guarantee, and we don't know. So if you get out of this room and something happens to you and you go to stand before God, you better have something to say. And the answer is not, I was good enough. I took communion. I brought a meal to the funeral dinner, blah, 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 blah. The answer is, not on anything I've done, but only because of him. If God the Father looks over at God the Son and he gives you the nod, then you're in. And if he doesn't, you're not. And that's it. You must believe in Jesus. Number one, repent. Number two, rest. Rest. Now, I just use the word believe. And I know that that is a tricky word um, in our society because what happens is we... We believe a lot of things, you know, and not all of those things are fully realized. Yeah, I believe this, or I believe that, or I may intellectually assent to something, but it's nothing I've ever experienced. When the Bible uses the word believe, it uses it entirely differently, and it's difficult for translators to sort of wrap this concept into this single word. So here's an example um, from a missionary who is headed out to an island uh, full of tribals and cannibals. And this is his experience. Here's what he says. Well, actually, it's a little bit on his life. John Gibson Patton, he wanted to be a foreign missionary. And so um, he studied theology and medicine and served for 10 years in the city of Glasgow as a city missionary. And after graduation, he was ordained by the Presbyterian Church and set sail for the New Hebrides. One day he was working in his home on the translation of John's gospel, puzzling over what to do with the expression pastuo, which is to believe or trust. How do I translate this to cannibals who have never trusted anybody in their entire life? They don't trust. They don't believe. If they believe, they get stabbed in the back. What do I do? Shortly thereafter, one of the locals walked in, and Patton, sitting on a chair much like I am, um, raised his feet up like this, and he asked the local, what am I doing? And the local said, you're resting your whole weight upon. He said, aha, there it is. There's my word. And he grabbed that one word and he stuck it in there in the Gospel of John for every single time the word believe came up. You see, As people, when we say we believe in Jesus, what we're saying is not we intellectually assent, not that we just think, yeah, he's cool, not that we read his teachings and try to be like him, but we are placing our whole lives into this thing. We are saying that everything hangs or falls on this. That if this is gone, it's all awash. But if this is true, then no matter what, we win. Because Jesus already did. It is finished. 
Jesus won. And if what he said was true and what he did was true, then nothing matters between now and then. In the end, everything's going to be okay. I want to experience his victories now. I want to see that happening in my life. But sometimes, guess what? It doesn't. So what happens if I fall? What happens if I lose? Is it all over because it hangs on me? No. Christ wins. And because he wins, even if I mess up now, my victory is still secure. Thank you. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Look, rest your whole, whole weight upon that. You know what I didn't tell you about Patton? Here's what happened. After arriving on the island, um, a few short weeks later, his wife got a fever and died. After that, their five-week-old son. For three more years in that same island, he labored until he became the hunted. And then he left and came back and worked for another 15 years on a different island. See, Patton wasn't sitting there drinking pina coladas in the shade, translating scripture. He gave up everything for this thing. He believed. He rested his whole weight upon Jesus. Because if he didn't, nothing else could have held him up. That's what it means to believe. Repent. Rest. Rest your whole weight upon it. And rejoice. Rejoice. Just like we never stop repenting, we never stop rejoicing. And that's the beauty of it. I promise if you say sorry for your sins, you will feel better. It's amazing how that works. In this Christian life, you know, we're still going to experience pain. We're still going to experience sorrow. We're still going to experience suffering. We're still going to struggle with sin. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the church. We have his word. But we still suffer. But... In our suffering, the Spirit comes to us and the community and the people and they minister. And as a result, we rejoice. But if you're not rejoicing, do you know what that means? If you can't rejoice in your life, do you know what that means? It means either A, you haven't repented and you're still holding on to that. And you're like, Ugh. or B, you're not resting your whole weight upon him. The Bible says that they, uh, when you lay down your head on your pillow at night, those who believe in God will sleep in peace. Not because you're pain-free, but because that pillow is the place of God's sovereignty that you fall asleep on every single night. Repent, rest, and rejoice. Rejoice. Four things that Jesus is. I don't know if, I hope you remember these. He is, what's the first one? Perfect. The second one, he is crucified. After he's crucified, he is risen. And after he's risen, he is raised to glory. Exactly right. And then as a result, when we see that highlight film go, what we want to do is repent, rest, and rejoice. Just the other night, on Friday night, on Good Friday, before we came to the service, we we're kind of rushing around, getting all our stuff ready, getting ready to go out the door. And we have a deal in our house. I didn't tell you this earlier, but so we don't get consumed with basketball, we'll tell our children, okay, one highlight for each boy, like those highlight films, on Saturday. Pick your team, pick your game, pick your whatever, you get to watch it. 
And so we know come Saturday, somebody's going to come run in the kitchen. Da, 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 da. Highlight time, highlight time, time to watch it. You know? And my wife and I were kind of discussing this. And my little daughter was sitting there. She's five. So I got 11, nine, boy, boy, and then five, little girl. And she's hearing this discussion between me and Robin. And she just shakes her head like this. And so what is it, honey? She said, boy, good Friday. We shouldn't be talking about basketball. We should be watch, worshiping Jesus. I kind of looked at my wife and she looked at me. <laughs> oh, from the mouth of babes, there it was. And she's right, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things that we wake up to in the morning that we're excited about. I want to ask you this question. What is your ultimate? What is your ultimate? Waking up on Saturday morning like, yeah, I get to go fishing. Today I'm going to go shopping. Today we're going to watch basketball. You want to know what your ultimate is? What's the first thing on your mind when you get up? There it is. Who is on your mind? What is on your mind when you wake up? Today is the day I'm going to chase the ultimate king, the ultimate savior, the ultimate sacrifice who loved and gave his life for me. Good Friday, Easter, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, doesn't matter. What should we be doing? Worshiping Jesus. After the service that night, I don't know if any of you, how many were here? Friday, just, just for kicks. Good Friday. Did you see the sunset over the parking lot that night? Wow, that was so beautiful. My kids were waiting on us or me or something, so they're in the car for a while. And we thought, oh, we're going to have trouble. But we got back to the car. That never happens to you, right? (laughs) Never. They're all just sitting there, perfect. Got it. Oh, boy, we're getting back to the car. Let's see what's going to be. And they're just staring at the sunset. And my little daughter again, God bless her, she says, Wow, Dad. Even the sky and the clouds and the trees are worshiping Jesus. He's the ultimate. Perfect king, crucified, risen, and coming again. What else is it? Repent, rest, and rejoice. Father, we thank you. For Jesus, our King, he is so perfect. Came to the manger, went to the cross, is resurrected, and will return. Lord, I just pray that um, we struggle with a daily grind. Stuff we do all the time, messes us up, wears us out, gets us down. We never forget what our ultimate King is like. Help us to repent, rest, and rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen.